Hi, Patrick. Hello, Lizzie. Would you like to go ahead and, and introduce yourself? My name's Patrick. I'm one of the producers of What Next TBD. And who's sitting behind you on the floor? Uh, well, behind me is my four-year-old tuxedo cat named Garbanzo. I think she's currently taking a bath. And how would you describe your relationship with Garbanzo? My relationship with Garbanzo is probably no different than other people's relationships with their pets in that she's baby and she's always going to be baby and I love her so much. What do you feed her? So I actually brought visual aids for you. It's very Um, helpful on a podcast. Yes, it's very helpful. So right here I have Earthborn Holistic Catalina Catch wet food. What's in that? So here on the ingredient label, it's got mackerel, Mm -hmm. fish broth, shrimp, sunflower oil, and then there's a lot of other words that I can't pronounce, but they seem like vitamins. The generous assumption. And what else do you have? And then I have some dry food, which is Origin Six Fish, which has whole mackerel, whole herring, flounder, Acadian redfish, monkfish, and then a lot of other fish meals. And then further down the list, strangely enough, collard greens. Um, But I don't know. A lot of these things feel like things that I like know what they are. I'm asking Patrick these slightly ridiculous questions because what we feed our pets is a fascinating social barometer. That's right, it's a fresh can today, huh? Isn't that exciting? And lately, over the past decade or so, there has been a movement and an industry encouraging us to feed them better and better things. Yeah. Here's your water. And, okay, go get ready. Go get ready. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Here's dinner. If you just take a stroll down the aisle at a pet store, you'll see the buzzwords food grade, ethical, and sustainable popping up a lot. And pretty soon, you might see a new one, lab-grown. Right now, a number of startups are working on cultivated, a.k.a. lab-grown meat for pet food. Would you feed her lab-grown fish? I think so. I I don't know if I have any qualms against it. I think a thing that I think about is, you know, my, like... We're not, like, vegetarians in our house, but, like, my partner grew up vegetarian, so I think we probably eat less meat than a lot of people do. And I'm also aware of, like, the environmental concerns around the meat industry, and I think that if lab-grown pet food were, like, widely available, it would be something I'd consider just because I know that that's a way to sort of, like, minimize environmental impact. I've thought about this a lot, too. I have a dog, a rescue pit bull named Mara. And while her standards are not particularly high, she has eaten things like a used coffee filter, for example, I try to put some thought into what she eats. So feeding her lab-grown meat with its promises of sustainability doesn't sound unreasonable. But 
It turns out that Patrick and I might be thinking about this all wrong, that the costs might outweigh the benefits. Today on the show, why lab-grown pet food may not be the sustainable answer that we're looking for. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around, pet people. This one's for you. If you have a pet, like me or Patrick, you have probably spent some time thinking about what they eat, how much it costs, where it comes from, what it's made of. And traditionally, pet food has been made from the byproducts of the meat industry. The organs, scraps, the bones, the tissues, everything that really humans don't actually want to eat. And the slaughterhouses have been able to sell that to different pet food companies over the years and make a lot of money from it. That's journalist Chloe Sorvino, a writer for Forbes and the author of the book Raw Deal. If you have questions about meat, Chloe is the person you turn to. And so when you think about how it, pet food fits into the broader meat industry, is it sort of like complementary? I mean, they're, they're getting the scraps or is it its own market? It's its own market, but it is a market that is indelibly tied to the conventional commercial meat industry. And that's, you know, that's been a history that's been decades, hundreds of years plus long. I mean, since, you know, the Upton Sinclair days, the meat packers were, you know, selling the scraps because they wanted to make as much money as possible and they didn't want to leave anything from these carcasses on the table. How much meat are we talking about? I mean, I saw one kind of widely quoted statistic from UCLA saying that if, like, the dogs and the cats in the U.S. were a country, they'd be, what, the, the fifth largest meat eaters on Earth? That that seems like a lot. It's an astronomical amount. The pet food industry in the U.S. is estimated around $50 billion in revenue a year. That's a very large amount. And, you know, let's talk about how... If all of the food waste in the world was a country, it'd also be the third largest country, right? And so pet food is this very kind of interesting, but also I think underrated controversial area because as people are more excited about adding more pets to their families and in the pandemic, so many new pet owners came um, to be, that's creating new meat demand. And that's... Hmm at a time when we really need to be doing the exact opposite. Um, Not only, you know, thinking really thoughtfully about where and how we're consuming meat and how much we're consuming, but also there's already so much meat still wasted in the system to begin with. Where this gets tricky is that a lot of us, and I would count myself in this group, want to feed our pets something that's high quality, that's ethical, maybe even something that sounds palatable to us. And because of that desire, a number of brands have gotten into the high-end pet food market, advertising their products as environmentally friendly and sustainable. We love our planet as much as we love our pets. So we're doing everything we can to lower our environmental impact while making fresh, sustainable food for the pets we love. But when you zoom out and think about both meat consumption and food waste, Chloe says that these brands are missing the point. Pet food has been a place where meat can be saved if, or where it would be otherwise, you know, these bones, organs, tissues would be going into landfills. But as 
pet owners want to feed their pets things that are maybe more, um, you know, appetizing to their eyes. And as they want to, you know, give more whole cuts or steaks, chicken breasts, things that we would recognize, that is making more meat demand. That is creating a new market Hmm. for higher end products. And that's not the waste, right? So in some ways, pet food has this kind of sustainable edge to it. But if it's the raw dog foods or you know the, the whole steak options that are really coming out, and there are so many different companies that are making a lot of money and, and raising billions of dollars to do that, you know, that is not sustainable. I mean, I, I have a dog and she will and has eaten like the most disgusting things you could possibly imagine off the street. And on the other hand, if I like open Instagram, I am inundated with ads for food grade pet food. And she eats a pretty nice food at this point. And I think I think it's very difficult if you are someone who has a pet to sort of figure out what the ethical consumption might be. And that's exactly why I only have my composting worms that uh, eat my raw food scraps. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I, I completely understand. It's just this really, um, it's a really underrated relationship and tension that I think when you're taking on a pet or adding another pet to your family, people really aren't thinking about, obviously thinking about how expensive it is to maybe feed that animal, right? But, um, you know, even some of the most judicious, most ethical food consumers, um, it's it's still another leap and jump in some ways to kind of understand that even if you are a vegan or even if you're eating a mostly plant-based diet, if you're feeding your pet, you know, the highest end that's out there that is really driving meat demand. When we come back, what happens if lab-grown meat becomes a big industry and a big user of energy? Last time I had you on this show, when your book came out, um, we talked a bit about lab-grown and cultivated meat. And you made a prediction. You said, 2023, it's going to be here. And here we are. And it is, in fact, here. Um, Tell me what's commercially available. Yeah, so that prediction was spot on. (laughs) And we are now, you know, we're now a few weeks really into the first of these lab-grown meat, cultivated chicken products selling. Um, There's one restaurant, Dominique Bar Cren in the Bay Area that is including the um, Upside Foods product on its menu. And then we have the Jose Andres China Chilicano tasting menu in DC that's also including the good meat chicken um, as, as part of its broader menu. And, you know, the access is super limited. I think China Chilicano is only taking around eight reservations for that a week. Um, it's very hard to get and it's extremely expensive. And while yet, you know, at the same time, the startups that are selling these products and and putting them out in the market for the consumers to try for the first time, uh, they're taking, you know, massive, massive multiple million dollar losses pretty much every time one of those dishes leaves the kitchen. The companies that are marketing lab-grown pet food are betting on scale that once this business becomes bigger and cheaper, people will buy cultivated meat for their pets. Our cultured meat is grown from a small sample of humanely harvested animal cells. We feed those cells a mixture of protein, vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients, 
all inside our bioreactor where they grow and divide and ultimately become cultured meat without harming a single animal. That ad is from a company now called Biocraft Nutrition that has gotten into this market. There are dozens of startups, I've tallied at least a dozen in the U.S. that are now not only marketing to investors and trying to get adoption for their lab-grown meat products, but there are a huge new cadre of pet food cultivated meat makers, right? So that is a very specific type of business that, again, is potentially, you know, really marketing towards these like super rich pet owners who really want to be able to have the kind of virtue signaling or top of the line ethical animal rights claims as possible for their pet. But there are more than a dozen startups right now, you know, raising money and trying to get approval in the U.S. for their own products. And so (laughs) that creates an entirely new and interesting facet to this tension, right? Because not only have pets been driving new meat demand as as pet owners want to, you know, support their pets with higher quality, um, more human-like meat, but now, you know, there's also all the other issues with lab-grown meat being pushed into that as well. What's the pitch, right, for for lab-grown pet food? Is it, this is more humane because animals don't have to be slaughtered? For sure. It's it's absolutely being marketed as more humane. I mean, PETA is 100% behind these cultivated pet foods. But I think it's really important to take a step back because there is still so much up for debate around all the other aspects to this, not just the animal welfare. Like what? If it's actually good for the environment, if it's actually good for the animals. Um, but when you talk about the environment sustainability, particularly, you know, there have been a very few amount of studies. And some of the initial studies really point to the fact that there's a massive amount of energy that's used to produce these products. And that's for the human consumption, but it's also for the pets. And if these startups aren't really being very strategic about how they're building out their plants to create these novel foods, if they're not really using solar, wind, water, power, renewable energy, these really could have far more impact Hmm. than the conventional meat. And especially with pet food, because, you know, I think the waste question is pretty important to dig into. There's already so much existing meat demand, right? And unfortunately, you know, big meat, that's not really going away anytime soon as much as, you know, I think a lot of activists or folks who are interested in this might want to see that. And so that means there is this fundamental layer of waste that happens on the manufacturing level. And if more of that is not going to pet food, if if there's now lab-grown meats in the picture and cultivated cat foods and cultivated dog foods on the markets, that will be creating entirely new resource systems and waste will just end up being more waste. And we already have a third of all food going to landfills. And one study that's in my book talks about how an average of 41 pounds of meat and protein are wasted per capita in America every year. Wow. And again, that's from already the pet food that is is trying not to be wasted. 
I, I think this is so fascinating because I remember when when I talked to you the last time, it kind of blew my mind thinking about the amount of energy that it takes to to run one of these bioreactors, which is where cultivated meat is made. And I just I wonder if that undercuts the sustainability argument when you balance it with, say, let's say you're grazing cattle, which takes up a lot of agricultural space and also the, like, has anyone really done the math on figuring out the emissions question? It's really happening right now. I mean, these these products are already being sold. And I think investors and these startups are really hoping that consumers glom on and, and become so addicted to these products that they don't even start to think about really the, the energy question. But the energy question is a, a massive, massive question. It really needs to be figured out. There have been several studies done. There was another paper announced just a few months ago. It's a awaiting peer review publication. But those researchers found that the environmental impact of lab-grown meat could be four to 25 times worse than the average beef sold at supermarkets. Whoa. And that's like your regular beef. That's not fancy beef. Right. Conventional, like as factory farm as it comes at the supermarkets. And so, you know, I think that's important here because I really dug into this question a lot for my book and the research. I didn't even really want to write about lab-grown meat for the book originally, but it was just, it was coming from all ends. That I feel like I really needed to address it. And I spoke with pretty much every founder, every investor in this space, hundreds of people, and almost none of the founders of Lab Grow Meat are really talking about how they're going to be adding renewable energy to their plants and their production long-term. A lot of them are really banking on tapping into the national energy grid. And while you know the Biden administration has said the national energy grid will become renewable by 2030, I mean, again, that's a lofty goal great. Would love to see it. But our energy grid, A, is already oversubscribed. And B, it's meant for public infrastructure, right? It's not meant for a business that may never be profitable. And especially not meant for, I think, you know, a private investor-backed pet food business that is creating new meat demand where it otherwise, you know, could actually be solving a waste problem. I think one of the things that's so hard here is if you are someone who has a pet, you, I know, thinking about like, how do I do the sort of quote unquote right thing? On the one hand, cultivated meat is like, okay, there seem like there might be some benefits. There's less of an ick factor than for human consumption, but it's really hard to unpack what is ethical, what's the right thing to do. And, and it makes me wonder, like, do we need to be pursuing quote unquote, more ethical food for our pets at all? I mean, I'd say it's a money grab in all honesty, because A, there's just already a dozen of these startups, right? In the pet food cultivated meat space alone. And while the pet food market overall has actually been a very thriving market, there's been a bunch of massive billion plus dollar acquisitions, um, even this in the past year, because people constantly make money off of pet food and it's a very high margin product with very low inputs again, because it's all wasted products. Otherwise, there are investors who are getting into these now, like, you know, deviations, variations of these types of cultivated meat products, because they're hoping that there will either be roll-ups or there'll be mergers or, you know, maybe a Mars or a General Mills, which have made a bunch of pet acquisitions before, you know, they'll be willing to at least buy one or buy two or be invested enough in the space that, you know, it kind of can sustain itself that way. But again, the cost structure is completely out of whack. 
And most of these brands will never make money in our lifetimes, if not ever. So if you were listening to this and thinking, well, Chloe just scrambled my brain on how to be, you know, a more responsible or environmentally friendly pet owner, like, what, what, do, you, what do you do? What would you say? I mean, there really always are trade-offs in food. That's the hard thing, right? I mean, the land use with factory farms and, and the water pollution and the soil pollution and the air pollution that comes from that, that is horrific too. I'm, I'm not, not saying that, but, you know, I think the future really are kind of closed loop systems where we're really working specifically to try to get as much waste out of the system as possible. And if this massive, massive meat industry isn't the bulk of it anyway, going away anytime soon, we need to address that because that means there will be always a massive amount of bones just from all of these billions of animals that are slaughtered every year, right? So, you know, there's no easy answer, but I personally think that lab-grown pet food is more of a money-making ploy than anything else. So is there a better question to ask, right? If if the question about lab-grown pet food is the wrong question, what's the right one? I mean, first of all, why are we buying as much meat as we are and then still wasting 40 pounds per person a year, right? I mean, with dogs and cats, it's like they are, in fact, omnivores. They do need meat. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And exactly. And I think that's a big point, too, because, you know, well, humans can't, well, we we can, we can be omnivores. We can eat plants. We can survive off of a vegan diet or a, a more mushroom-based diet or plant-based diet. Animals are carnivores. They need to eat meat. And it's um, in some ways, a little abusive to not have them eat meat. At the same time, it really depends on where that meat comes from. I think the best way to get a pet food, honestly, would be going to a local farm and seeing what scraps they have. And 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 there are a lot of you know local farms or food hubs that work regionally that actually do make a local pet food. And I think that is exciting to me, right? Because there's also a level of community support and community there. Um, it also is taking far less time to travel to wherever you are. Um, and it's part of a closed loop system. Like, I mean, animals need to eat meat, but could we also start having them have feeds with more like kind of mushroom waste products or other types of products like that, that could be part of a, a system that's created together where that end use is completely built in from the beginning. That would be exciting. Chloe Servino. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Chloe Servino is a staff writer covering food and agriculture at Forbes. She's also the author of Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. Special thanks, of course, to Patrick and Garbanzo. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Patrick Fort and Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.